Kylie Dutson, a neurodiverse 30-something who is obsessed with organisational psychology and welcome to Lightbulb Moments, the podcast about all things psychology. Welcome to the conversation today. I am chatting with Sarah Crozier and we're talking about things organisational psychology, teams and how to have a good workplace. Sarah, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Crozier. I'm a reader in occupational psychology at Manchester Met at University in the Department of People and Performance. I'm also a chartered psychologist. Um, my background as a practitioner and an academic in occupational psychology. I'm fascinated by how we make work a better place for everybody. On the way today, people don't like to say no. It's such a hard thing, isn't it? I've reflected on this for myself. Producer Liam, can you just make a small soundbite of Jennifer was a delight? What is professionalism at work? What is my professional identity? Um, Can I be friends with the people I line manage? So welcome to Lightbulb Moments, my podcast, which is weird. (laughs) Um, We always start with talking about uh, our origin story. So how we met, how we know each other, how you've ended up being sat in this space. Um, And I always let the guest go first because I think it's funny to hear your version of it and then I kind of chip in with my version. Amazing. So what's our origin story? Well, first of all, thank you ever so much for having me. It's really nice to be here. Very excited to be part of your podcast. Um, So my recollection, and I'm trying to work out how many years ago it is, I think it must be around 2014, 2015. I would agree because I had a baby. Yes. (laughs) So Jennifer, you were on our postgraduate MSc in HRM programme and at the time, I'm not sure for your cohort whether I was the course leader or whether I just taught you across a number of different units. So one of those units would have been Business Psychology in Action, which is our sort of optional unit for our HRM students. Um, And the other one would have been Developing Skills for Business Leadership, which is our skills-based unit that we we teach um, and I remember you being very engaging a delight uh, to teach um, and then since then we've done a number of things um, together the most recent being you very kindly came to do some guest lectures for us on the very unit of which you were a student that all those fun. years ago on business psychology in action yeah and we've stayed in touch since yeah can you uh, uh produce Liam can you just make a small soundbite of Jennifer was a delight just to just to keep as reference for the future. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, it, and it, again, it was, I, I had a very small baby. So managing that and doing the, the coursework and the studying, but I loved it. And obviously I found you really engaging. And so um, that's why we stayed in touch and doing the, the lecturing as well was super fun. Did you enjoy it? It was. Yeah. I did enjoy it. It was lots of fun. It's a shame because that unit's not running this year I anymore. Know. But we we do have a whole range of other different modules and options that we could talk about at some point. That, that would You'll be useful. Me into something else that I can come and talk about fun stuff with. Indeed. <laughs> um, what are we talking about today? Well, when you asked me to do this, I was thinking about my career as a sort of chartered psychologist and a practitioner and an academic. And one of the key themes that I'm always fascinated by is how do we create good work for people? That's really at the heart of what we do. So how do people have a good day at work? What does that mean? What are the ingredients for that? And we've been doing some fascinating work recently across a number of projects within our research centre 
which is called the Centre for Decent Work and Productivity, where we try and look at the interplay between those ingredients and the consequences for people and organisations. And so within that, there's a number of really sort of fascinating threads and themes. The first, perhaps, is about how people's expectations of work are are changing. So what is good work? And, and should we expect to have a good day's work? Is that something that is... Some, is universal that should be acceptable for all of us and and we would suggest certainly we would aspire to create workplaces where that is the case and then other things which which feed into that again that center on well-being this idea of can we be our true self at work is there a space within the modern workplace to allow us to get the support that we might need for a range of different issues that impact upon our ability or our levels of comfort, credibility and confidence to do the job that we want and to be able to create work that is meaningful, that gives people a sense of pride and advocacy, a sense of enjoyment um, and allows them therefore to flourish and to thrive within their role. So those are the sorts of themes, but I'm very happy to explore any nuances or any complexities within those. Yeah, and we, we may well squirrel in one way or another as we continue to talk because that tends to be what happens if you say something I'm like oh that's really interesting let's talk about that so we might squirrel circle back and then and then get back to it um I'm really interested in this idea of uh, bringing your whole self to work um you said that you've done research on it what is the is the general message you can is the general message you can't what does what does that look like I think it's predicated upon an organizational culture and climate so at the moment what we're seeing in in some organizations absolutely that's very welcome in other organizations sadly there's still this view and there are complexities that I think we could explore about whether it's always okay to bring your full self to work in what circumstances might it not be and and what difficulties does it create those are the taboos for organizations as well aren't there because often there's this idea that you know if I'm delivering a lecture for example and I've got 250 students and I've had a really difficult time is it okay for me to divulge certain things that might be particularly sensitive or troubling or harrowing you know can you always bring your full self what sorts of things should you disclose perhaps shouldn't you disclose how do you read the room um and it's it's controversial it's really problematic because every single person I've talked to about this has a very different viewpoint on it and that person might be a leader of an organization they might be a manager of an organization or of a small team so, so it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, certainly there is evidence uh, and we're seeing some really exciting, fascinating stories of organisations that are very innovative and they're building a culture and climate where people feel if they want to, um, that they can certainly disclose the things that they choose to or need to disclose in order to feel supported. Um, and so from an idealistic point of view, absolutely. From an occupational psychology point of view, it's really important that organisations create that environment for people to do that Mm. it gets me thinking about from a um from a generational perspective though is there because if we look back maybe not with our our current our younger generation right now they want to bring their whole selves to work and they don't have problems talking about things that maybe 20 30 years ago was taboo right so they'll come in and or they might phone up and say i can't come in today because i've got really bad menstrual cramps absolutely and they have no problem uh, saying that whereas maybe 20 30 years ago or that generation wouldn't necessarily bring that so you're seeing that there's a generational difference in it I imagine so and I think we're really socialized aren't we throughout our lives in different ways we've got lots of different socializers and they might be our early experiences from how much our parents or our family talk about different issues and how much people show emotion for example whether people feel it's okay to bring your emotional self to work is often a product of perhaps how we are socialized 
early on in our careers and learn about what's important to be successful or what's what's not and I think it's about role models you know if you have a really strong role model or you see examples of where people can can be both vulnerable and strong at the same time then I think that's really powerful you know there's lots of those around at the moment which I think gain you know a lot of traction in this field so you know if you look at um Jacinta Arden for example that's a really good one that, that I think has gained a lot of prominence in people being able to suggest that we can expose our vulnerabilities and still be seen as being able to perform mm. um but absolutely I think there's a generational um difference but I think that it's not necessarily just based upon age or generation that you know you will see perhaps um many of our older generations in the workplace feeling that it is comfortable um, to share that sort of information and I think one of the things I mentioned to you before is that you know if you look now on LinkedIn I think there's been a massive change in organizational culture and individual values that sit around this maybe five or seven years ago on LinkedIn I didn't see when I looked through my newsfeed lots of personal stories about things such as work and illness work and loss how people use work as a form of recovery how people use work as support from really difficult experiences how people manage their health and disability status and how that interacts with work people are much more comfortable now in in doing that and I think that is part and parcel of this this real sea change in being able to bring more of ourselves to work if the climate allows it perhaps Mm. it feels like there's a huge responsibility because we're talking about organizationally and culturally like there is a a huge responsibility is it the organization is it the manager how do those two things interweave in terms of communication it's fascinating isn't it because a lot of this is about culture and so you could have a fantastic policy and one of the things I always feel like I trot out in many of the lectures that we talk about is you know we talk about policy and practice and the interplay you could have a wonderful policy in a HR department you could have a really empowered HR department who feel really strongly and have designed all of these really forward-thinking creative and innovative ways to operationalize these things in organizations but then at different levels within the organization you could have a manager who perhaps just doesn't get it or doesn't understand it or doesn't share the value or has a very different view of the working world than that particular policy or practice and therefore it doesn't become enacted in the way it's intended and that's really hard then because often it it breaks down that chain between the the values that might sit at the top of the organisation and how those are then sort of socialised down and shared and often what we're seeing is in really small dynamic new organisations because there's not much distance between those levels. You're seeing a much more inclusive culture, perhaps. Um, yeah, so I think that that's, that's really important. But there's also this notion of responsibility, isn't there? And, and whose responsibility ultimately mm-hmm. is it to create that environment and to maintain it and to share it? And I think a lot of the time it's everybody's responsibility, including, you know, us as an employee. So when we talked about stress and health and we think about stress management we talk about the legal responsibility that an organization has but equally there's an individual level of accountability that we have to have to take control of our own well-being within that so you know again it's quite controversial the organization should never give you too much work to the extent where you're overworked but if you are saying it's okay and continuing to do it at some point you have to take a little bit of accountability it becomes a shared space but Equally, the culture needs to allow you to be able to raise your hand and say, help me, I'm struggling and I'm not going to be um, criticised for doing that. I'm going to be supported for doing that. So I think there's a really complex 
um, picture around those different elements of responsibility. But ultimately, even though the individual has a part to play in terms of things like their choice as to whether they want to talk about a particular issue that might be personal, the organisation still needs to take that accountability for making sure that people feel safe and psychologically safe as well as physically safe at work. Yeah, I spend a lot of time co- like with my coaching clients. One of the things that comes up a lot is I've got too much to do. Um, and one of the very first things that we talk about with that is reframing. I don't have time to it's not a priority. Yes. Because it becomes that ownership then, right? Like I'm I'm, in, I'm deciding what is a priority and what isn't versus putting the onus on time, which is very abstract, which is out there. Like it's time's fault. Um, so that's one of the first things that, that we work on. But also people don't like to say no. Absolutely. Right? So. It's such a hard thing, isn't it? I've reflected on this myself in terms of, you know, the last 15 or so years thinking about I never used to be comfortable in saying no because I felt like it would be a reflection of my level of um, energy or my level of effort, my level of commitment. But actually, it's a really wise thing to do because if you don't say no, you're going to become overloaded. In, in certain jobs, in certain fields, in fact, I imagine in many, there are so many opportunities to do so many different amazing projects, left, right, and centre, all of the time, that it becomes really difficult. And actually, when you spread yourself too thinly, perhaps you need to take a little bit of sort of personal accountability for trying to make sure you manage that um but also set against the fact that we do see frequently in many of the projects that we work on that organizations are quite good at exploiting goodwill of their workers and i think that's quite problematic so so all of this is really complicated um especially when you throw in the mix this idea of being able to to be your true self and ask for the support that you might need at different points in your career or your life yeah, because it comes with the the good, right? So to be able to come in and share good news stories and the great things that are happening, but also on the flip side, if you if you if you're in a period of time where you're dealing with a lot of issues, so just recently, like my um, my granddad passed away, my grand's been in hospital, and it felt felt like it would have been time after time after time. Oh, I have to do this. I have to deal with this. I imagine that that the goodwill from an organization can rapidly decline if you have a series of events which happen within a close proximity of of each other oh i see so we're thinking here about goodwill in terms of the goodwill from the organization to support you in that instance yeah do you know i think again that's really fascinating because often there is no time limit on some of these challenges that people face so people might have very long-term caring responsibilities that fall outside of child care responsibilities for example they might have family members with disabilities they might have informal caring arrangements um they might have a whole host of demands placed on them that perhaps aren't recognized in the sort of mainstream um and and they are unpredictable often and they require the need for things such as flexibility or agile working they might require the need for people to work less hours than they're contracted to for certain time points they might mean that people can't focus in the same way that they're not going to be productive for a significant amount of time or as productive because they simply don't have anything left in their tank to give to work in the same way as they did previously but it doesn't mean that they're not competent and able to do their job and I think those are really difficult tensions to unravel because there's a lot of debate around and again with with incredibly controversial I'm not suggesting I have any of the answers here but from a HR point of view and an occupational psychology point of view there are really grey areas around challenges with at what point does it become a performance issue versus a need for support and I don't think anybody's really unpacked that and what it means and the impacts that that has 
on the individual. My view would always be, and we're seeing some fantastic examples of organisations that do this, my view would always be that any organisation should support their employees, whatever it is that they're going through, for whatever amount of time is necessary, and that there's always a way to make adjustments that will help people to feel supported and able to perform in some element of their role, even if that means they are taking extended periods of time where their effort for work is reduced in one way or another. Mm. What are some of the the best organisations doing? I won't ask you about the worst organisations, maybe. We'll see. What are some of the best organisations doing in terms of allowing people to bring their whole, whole selves? Are there very tangible things that they're doing? I think it's really hard, that difference between values and behaviours. And if you sit down and talk to people in organisations where this is happening, they would simply say, I feel relaxed. There's no pressure on me. Um, I feel able to disclose um, everything I need to disclose and I feel supported in everything that I do. And that could that could be in a number of different ways. So it could just simply be that there is um, no level of working a set number of hours per week, that it's simply just do what you can to get the work done that you need to get done and, and let's have a, a line manager or a manager of sorts that is able to sit with you um, and meet with you however often you require um, to make sure that you're comfortable and able to work in a way that best suits you. And now I know just thinking about what I've just said there that there'd be many people who say well that's absolutely ridiculous and that's not sustainable long term and it's not efficient for an organisation it's not productive for an organisation because ultimately we do need people to to get their job done um, but I think it's about an acknowledgement and that people that life happens there are always going to be those things um, and it's about trusting your employees if they do need support and freedom to work in a way that is conducive to meeting their needs that that you provide that and that you check in and that you have a genuine sense of compassion and that you acknowledge that the small things you say um, the tokens of support the gestures of support the genuine care is there that for me is that the the central difference between an organisation that does things well and, and doesn't do things well. In organisations that don't do things well, all of those things are missing. But I think there's also a level of a link very readily to performance. Seeing the individual in a way that is in, in some way um, disrespectful or that they are distrusting of, of what's happening or the circumstances that sit around one of those issues... So I understand that, yes, this is a little bit idealistic sometimes for certain organisations, but um, you create and foster an environment where you understand that these things are happening to people all of the time. Um, they are commonplace and people shouldn't have to try and, and hide them because if they do, if people don't feel able to um, to disclose when they might need support, the end result often is that they're going to suffer some sort of physical or psychological ill health themselves or that they're going to ultimately underperform anyway or that they're going to leave the organisation and they are an otherwise very talented, competent individual who just needs a little bit of support during what can be quite sometimes quite long periods of time where things are difficult. It's why um, on engagement surveys, there's that question often which you see, which is at work, um, my manager or someone at work seems to care about me as a person. And you can use it as a, as a metric to manage and, and understand engagement in your team because it is so much more than just managing, right? We talk about managing is, is the day job, not a distraction from the day job. Yeah, it's, it's so important. And I think it, it lends itself towards 
what sort of skills line managers need or what sort of attributes or traits they need, what sorts of values they need. Um, but it's that task versus person, isn't it? So, you know, you can see this all of the time. There's just different styles. There's different ways of managing and that's okay. And there's also boundary management issues there for line managers. And I think that's something that's so important that more work needs to happen on exploring this. And we've done a piece of work recently looking at the role of line managers in managing mental health at work. And there's a really big responsibility there in that often you're dealing with highly sensitive, um, very confidential information that can often be quite traumatic or harrowing to listen to. And you're just a normal person as a line manager. You might not feel very confident in dealing with that. You might have some personal experience of it, which could be both a good thing or a bad thing. It could be potentially very triggering. You might just feel very lost. You might have a great HR department that would help you with that, or you might not. Um, and people are still very uncomfortable often at dealing with those issues. So there's a real need if you're going to start putting in place lots of support for individuals and organisations, which is wonderful, that you also put those levels of support in higher up because your line managers are still people too and they're still employees. And we often perhaps, I don't think, get there fully with, with that. Yeah. On the um, uh, So on the Gallup Q12, which is their engagement survey, question number 10 is, I have a best friend at work. And it's always the one that raises the most amount of conversation. And it's because not many people say yes. Not many people agree or strongly agree to it. But there's also usually a lot of strongly disagrees. And when we start to talk about that, the conversation is often, well, I shouldn't have a best friend at work. Or I have friends, but it's not a best friend. This is a ridiculous metric. But all the data shows that there is that correlation between someone having a best friend at work and also staying in that job. And it, it links with what you're saying about having someone, a confidant to talk to, to disclose those kinds of things. Um, how does that, if that is your manager, like you're saying, how, how do those lines blur? I think they blur a lot and I think it's really problematic sometimes. I think, again, lots of different value systems around this, lots of different opinions. It, it's that debate around, you know, what is professionalism at work? What is my professional identity? Um, can I be friends with the people I line manage or can I be friends? Uh, should, I, should I have deep friendships at work or should they just be workplace friendships and I think the results from that are absolutely fascinating for the same reason that people actually feel it's a negative thing mm. and they feel it's quite problematic but equally we know that social support at work is massively important so one of the things where people do or engage in a lot of homeworking as we know has been the case over the the last number of years is that it can be really worrying because people lose that sense of social support don't they they might have it in virtual ways but they often lose that that sense of um sort of the, the the conversations in the hallway the water cooler moments you know all of that stuff that is actually really helpful in boosting our well-being and enabling us to learn from one another in quite informal ways at work that just supports our level of confidence in that we're doing a good job that we that we're in it together all of those sorts of things so I think there are massively blurred boundaries and again loads of different opinions as to what is okay or what's not okay and I think for me, it's, it's about a compromise. It's about finding something that's comfortable for the organisation and comfortable for the individuals that work within it. And then thinking about on the flip side, what happens when friendships at work go wrong? What happens in terms of the consequences for how those people work with one another moving forward? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, that's pretty underexplored perhaps as yeah. well. My um, uh, So I had this amazing best boss ever and was also a a best friend 
And I think it worked amazingly because there weren't those boundaries. You could say, hey, I need to go and take time to do this. Or, you know, you can send funny gifts. Or when you're in that HR space, there's someone to go and vent at and be able to talk very in a very non-HR way that we sometimes do. Um, But when it came to, because she was my boss, when it came to things like asking for promotions and asking for pay increases... They were really difficult conversations because of that blurred line. And then also, I think when I look back at it, I probably made more allowances because it was more, I don't want to put you in a difficult position to then have to go and have a conversation with your manager about my salary increase or my promotion. So I almost did myself a disservice because I didn't want to put her in an awkward place. Absolutely. It's so insightful and so interesting to think about those those challenges that that creates and it you can then see an argument that would suggest that some boundaries around friendships at work, particularly where they are hierarchical or where one person holds more or less power, dependent upon their position, you know, they are potentially quite tricky. Um, My view is that, you know, compassion and social support breeds friendship and friendship is a natural part of life that we shouldn't isolate from one context to the next. Friendships happen quite organically often, don't they? And defining them can be quite tricky because, you know, you might say, well, they're not my friend, they're just my colleague or it's a work friend or it's a manager. She's sort of a bit like my friend, but she's also my manager. So those sorts of debates around how we define them for ourselves and how each person within that dyad, you know, you might think, uh, or I might think that I'm really good friends with my manager but they might just see me as a colleague so it's potentially there's a lot of space for rejection in that in that zone as well isn't there which is is interesting too um but it's fuzzy it's it's really complex and and fuzzy and I think yeah the two things for me are how you balance that idea of having some boundary management for all of the reasons that you've just said um and also how you then marry that with this need for social support that we all have Um, And I think going back to one of our projects where we looked at the role of the line manager in managing mental health, it was really troublesome for them because actually, you know, your role as a manager in managing mental health at work, you're not that person's therapist. Um, Your your role is to signpost people to sources of support, not provide that support yourself. And I think where you had those very close friendships at work... um, you know, that's a natural spillover, isn't it? We always want to support people if we're naturally compassionate and friendly and we we, we want to provide that support, support for people and we can indeed in lots of different informal and formal ways. But I think where you've got that power dynamic, it becomes really difficult to manage um, for everybody. And what we saw were quite interesting stories where an organisation needs to take more responsibility and ownership for how those sorts of things play out and how that is also very much a time constraint for managers so you want to do a really good job in supporting somebody who's going through any sort of difficult time as a line manager Um, but that is going to eat into your time uh, quite significantly if you're going to do a good job and so there's a lot in there I think that that needs some further exploration yeah and I think there's the um, I always say don't take people's monkeys so this idea that if you are having a conversation with someone and they are disclosing something, not taking the burden on yourself and not carrying someone else's monkey for them, as that that role as a manager, having to balance between saying, well, I'm here to listen, but I'm also here to help you feel empowered to solve the problem. I think a lot of our managers take people's monkeys and they're like, okay, that's a problem, so I'm going to take it. And then I'm going to have another conversation with someone else and then I'm going to take their problem. And then the manager gets overloaded with everybody else's monkeys, everybody else's problems, because they feel like they have to solve because we're not training 
managers yeah. properly. And naturally, I think there's, um, for many of us, we want to fix other people when they come to us with a problem. We want yeah. to be able to help them. It also makes us feel good to know that we can do that. But knowing in what ways we can do that within the context in which we're operating. And that's the same for friendships as well, isn't it? And different relationships. You know, it is really quite a tough ask. But I think you're absolutely right. I don't think there's been enough work that's understanding how we stop doing that or how we manage that in a way that is still equally supportive to those individuals or is perceived in a way that is still providing support but keeping some sort of boundary or some sort of distance. So because effectively what we are also seeing is quite a lot of secondary trauma in the workplace as well. So if you've got an, a work environment where people are disclosing and talking about quite harrowing issues a lot of the time, it's so important to share. It's so important to have an open space where people feel comfortable to share really difficult workplace situations or very personal circumstances. But equally, again, that opens itself up to the need for support. So, you know, we've done a lot of work on, we mentioned before, you mentioned the example of menstrual um, issues. And we did a lot of work recently looking at women's health in the workplace and some really challenging topics there around sort of baby loss, fertility treatment at work, and having organisations that are prepared to deal with those and hear those stories is is wonderful. But equally, we need support for those who are working within those environments so that they're able to process um, the information that they are hearing, the stories that they are um, sharing with one another, um, you know, so that everybody gets the support that they need and, and so that they're not taboo issues anymore. But equally, they don't... Um, impact upon the ability for people to continue um, performing in their role. So it, it's a delicate balance, isn't it, between exploring all of those things but knowing where the boundaries are. Is this where things like employee networks, staff, staff networks are useful or do you think that they remove the not the responsibility from the manager but do they remove the visibility from the manager if we say if you want to talk about baby loss there's an employee network and if you want to talk about neurodiversity yeah. and disability there's go an employee there network. Go over there to do it. Yeah, it's just, almost that, corner. just let's go over there to do it. And because I think we're moving into a zone where many of these topics are much more comfortable yeah. They and they should be absolutely um, out there in the mainstream for people to talk about but at their heart often they have quite troubling content that for some people is still very sensitive and very difficult to listen to um and so th there's that balance between is a topic suitable you know do you want to be sat in an open plan office where people are talking about bereavement for the whole day is that going to be really difficult for everybody in that environment um but really beneficial for that one person who needs that source of support for me as an occupational psychologist that's really hard because we need to reconcile all of that but what's the answer, Sarah? I don't know. I think we need to be able to make sure that the environments are a safe space so you can disclose those things and you do feel that people care if you're experiencing those sorts of really difficult personal challenges. Um, but you're doing so in a way, the organisation needs to be set up and have the appropriate sources of support in place for everybody. But yeah, That's I don't not the think, answer, Sarah. No, I don't <laughs> think there's an easy answer to any of this. My view is very much that we, we need to remove the stigmatisation around all of these challenges, but they're inherently challenging things to talk about. Um, but then, as we say, life is full of inherently challenging things and the workplace is full of really challenging things anyway. So I think, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I like that. Um, we've all had those experiences of, of um, bad managers and just as we kind of wrap up today, 
if I'm, and I remember my very first manager was just the worst manager in terms of I felt belittled. I didn't feel listened to. Again, I could never say, hey, I'm going to be 15 minutes late or I've got an appointment. I could never do any of those things. And it was very micromanaged in terms of go for your break. And if you're a minute over, I'm going to acknowledge that. Um, if I'm in a position where I want to disclose, but my manager is that very old school who's not a good manager, what do I do? It's hard, isn't it? It's about where are the different sources of support within that organisation outside of your direct line manager. So obviously, you know, in an ideal world, a line manager would be the person that you can go to and should be the person that you can go to. Um, but often you might get those differences in, in style, in personality, in discriminatory behaviours, which mean that the line manager isn't, you don't feel comfortable or able to, for whatever reason, um, to do that. And so you can seek support in lots of different ways. So it might be that you seek support from a colleague or that that somebody else so it might be that you seek support from HR but effectively that's not going to be enough because we what we need to do is make sure that those those experiences of people management are positive um and every organisation has a massive accountability to do that because the line manager is often the go-to person. It's the person you are either physically um, sort of close to uh, in, in your direct working environment um, or who certainly on paper you should be discussing any of your work-related issues or non-work-related issues with. And so I think it's important that we we try and build this idea of compassionate um, management wherever we can. And taking into account that there are tensions between providing compassionate management and and having an organisation that needs to perform well and that those are the, the things that are, are really quite problematic to unravel sometimes. Yeah, I think um, it's... Uh, well, Gallup have a book called It's the Manager. All right, would you, like a, would you like some random data? So the manager accounts for a 71% variance in employee engagement. Like that's a huge amount, right? So I think that Massive. it is, it very much is the manager because that's your first, all those touch points you have with your manager. You know, when you get married, all of those life experiences, when you get married, and um, when you buy your first pet, when your first pet dies, like when you have a baby, all of those things, your manager is that first first touch point. So I think that's the, that's the big thing that people need to realize if you are a manager, how important it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think often in, in a good workplace, you're really excited about the idea of interacting with your manager. In a bad workplace where you have bad line management, people's first reaction when they think about their line manager is being frightened or being scared or being intimidated. And so for me, those are the sort of things that we need to move away from. The idea of a really sort of autocratic, and like you mentioned, all of those examples around sort of trust, agile working, flexibility, freedom, trust in your employees that they are going to be able to do a good job. Uh, and that if they... I remember years and years ago, it's nearly 20 years ago when I worked for the HSE and I had quite a long commute. It was probably about an hour and a half in winter over quite a, um, a treacherous route. And they had flexi time there then, which was wonderful um, because what it meant for me is that if the traffic was bad or if the weather was bad, I didn't sit in the car and panic thinking, goodness me, I'm going to be late. I'm going to feel incredibly stressed. I'm going to feel incredibly anxious. I'm going to feel panicked that my land manager is going to think something really, um, you know, badly of me. Um, and then you can compare that to your experience of working in an organisation that perhaps doesn't offer that flexibility and you have to be at your desk between 8.30 and 5. And that if you aren't, for whatever reason, that there's no understanding or compassion shown to you, that's simply something that you've done wrong. And for me, that in itself is just a, a perfect example of something that's, 
quite easily fixed in terms of creating an environment where people feel safe, they feel comfortable and they feel valued and, and ultimately quite happy then at work. And I've heard you say it a couple of times today, right? The the small things are the big things. So Definitely. So we were talking before this and I've got a million examples um, of this where actually it's very little small things that a manager or anybody at work says or does that project the values of the culture or showing that you care, asking somebody how their day is, knowing the names of their children, taking care to ask them what they've been doing understanding what their aspirations are, showing a genuine interest, but those very little things that which, which can often actually offset some really deep problems that might be industry-specific or might be external challenges that an organisation can't control. The ex- sort of opportunity you have as a colleague or a manager or a leader to be nice to one another, I mean, I know it's quite cheesy, but it's that be kind message. It really doesn't get old. It's so important. Those Those little things really are the big things. And all of the examples that we've seen in recent projects where people say, you know, this is a really good place to work, are absolutely linked to their examples of working um, in a very compassionate, kind environment. I am. Um, we could geek out about this all day. Mm-hmm. Um, final thoughts from you. What's something really interesting that you've learned recently that people will want to know about in terms of that occupational, organisational psychology space? I I think it's about this idea that, for me, something about individual work orientation. So we all have an orientation to work. So that might be that we go to work because we want to earn money. So we might see it as quite transactional. We might go to work because we want this sense of meaning or growth or development, whatever else it might be. Um, But all of those motivations, and we've known this for a long time, it's nothing especially new, but all of those motivations and reflections that we have about work, um, you know, they're quite deep rooted and everybody is very different in terms of what they expect from their workplace and what their workplace should expect from them. And so I think at the very heart of it is this need for organisations to be agile and think, you know, for some people, they'll expect work to be a burden. They'll expect work to be difficult. They don't mind if you're actually quite horrible to them because that's what they expect from work. That's not okay, You know, from a from a psychological point of view, that's not okay. but it still happens. From an individual point of view, it can be quite empowering to think about. Actually, we're now living in a, in a climate and a culture where you can create and empower yourself to think about what is it that you want from work what what does good work mean to you mm-hmm. and ultimately that will be different things for different people and it's a sense we've mentioned it a number of times or alluded to it in this conversation there's something around personal environment fit which I think just never gets old and within that is both an individual accountability if you're in the wrong job and you know that job's never going to give you what you need do you need to take some sort of personal responsibility to change that scenario for yourself? Or should the organisation try and amend the ways in which it offers you opportunities and different types of work to meet your expectations? And I think in that is some really sort of interesting reflections for people about their career journeys and expectations. Thank you for that. Sarah, thank you for coming and having a chat with me. Thank you very Um, much for having me. This is a space, again, that I'm sure lots of people will find interesting. And it's lovely to have a chat with someone who does the same stuff as I do as well. So, um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Hope you've enjoyed it. I have. It's been lovely. I could talk for a lot longer. (laughs) I know. That's great. (laughs) Thank you. 
that was a great conversation today with Sarah. I think that we explored so many different things, but my biggest takeaway and my light bulb moment for today was really about how safe it is to bring your whole self and the role of the manager in terms of allowing people to bring their whole selves. So I'd encourage you to have a think about what do you do to make it a safe space at work? For now, toodles. Oh, 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 o